What happens when a chef, a critic, and a culinary writer get together for a totally unscripted conversation? Welcome to Three Ingredients, a show about the world of food. I'm Ruth Reichel, and I've spent my whole life writing about it. I'm Nancy Silverton, America's busiest chef, and the woman who made sourdough bread making a household obsession. And I'm Laurie Ochoa, General Manager of Food at the Los Angeles Times and Happy Tripe Eater. Because if you're going to eat meat, you shouldn't let the good parts go to waste. When we talk about food, nothing is off the table. Today, we ponder the notion of seasonal and local and wonder if fish can be too fresh. We discuss some of our food heroes, offer up a little ode to lemons, and relate something so shocking you may never celebrate Thanksgiving in a restaurant again. I hope you have at least half as much fun as we did with today's conversation. By the way, all our episodes live over at threeingredients.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can support the show there or sign up for free, so each episode of Three Ingredients lands right in your email. That's threeingredients.substack.com. So, Nancy, where were you this weekend? I was at uh, the Chicago Restaurant Show. So what did you discover there? So I discovered an incredible frozen artichoke heart out of Spain that is being sold by uh, one of our um, purveyors, Chef's Warehouse, and their whole artichokes that are being not only, I guess, handpicked, but hand-cleaned and hand-packed in individual trays that kind of look like an egg carton because each artichoke is in its own little compartment. But they're frozen, and what's fantastic about them is that when cooked or seared in a pan, you would never know that it was a frozen product. And also, from a sort of a restaurateur's point of view, they're cheaper because there's uh, less labor involved in a in using a whole artichoke heart, but also there isn't a season to them. Now, Alice Waters could be shaking her head. <laughs> she would me, be shaking her but head. But it's a great product, you know. And I got to say, there's something to be said about the international availability of hand-selected great products. Another example, uh, you know, is Paquillo peppers from Spain which you can't get here. They only come in a can. And they're sweeter and more concentrated than any pepper I've ever had. Okay, so this is the opposite of seasonal local. This is not seasonal, not local. It's not, yeah. So there's a huge carbon footprint. It's not seasonal. I believe these are, this is not like a, commodity farm product. This is, you know, a small product uh, that's being farmed. So that's one good part of it. But I don't know. We've just, I think, boy, what a discussion that is because there is the pros and the, and, and the cons. And like, okay, let's talk about anchovies, which you cannot get locally and seasonally in Los Angeles. And I'm buying thousands of tins a year 
But when you're talking about this, what I'm thinking about is when I was first writing about food, so we're talking about in the 70s, and I would go to those restaurant shows, and then I would write about them to make fun of them because the first product I ever saw there, and so look, I'm living in Berkeley, right? Very earth shoe. And there was something called gourmets. And they were hard-boiled eggs that came in a roll, like a sausage. And, you know, they were marketed as, you know, you don't have to deal with those annoying little tips. You don't have, you know, it's, it's, they're every, every slice of a gourmet is exactly the same. And it's a totally processed product. And I would go through those shows looking for the most ludicrous products I could find. But you wrote a whole book about a exactly. twist of the wrist. Right. Um, and by it, the way, it was the book that nobody ever bought. Well, but you should, me. It, should, it should come out again because it's, it's absolutely timely now. You know what? It was so ahead of its time. You yeah. know, it really was. And I, I would love to bring it back out. And I, I you know, I love that book. Uh, and I love the fact that I was not embarrassed um, or, tr or to say, look at, there's so many things that can help a meal become even more delicious without spending the time, but they're great products. And both piquillo peppers and those um, white asparagus that come in a jar from Spain um, were in the book. And now there are all these restaurants that are specializing in canned fish. Right. Which yeah, I'm not a, a huge, huge here. fan on. I'm not a huge fan on with all those fit. What do you think? I mean, the, except for the anchovies. Anchovies, I absolutely adore. But some of the canned fish, I'm thinking, I think I would rather give those flavors to a fresher product. And I think it would, some of them would taste better. Do you have a, ladies, I'm, I'm, do you I'm have not, a? I'm not a big fan of those ludicrously I, I, expensive canned fish either. But I'm wondering if part of that experience is really the experience of being in Spain and standing up at those bars, eating the tin fish there, and there's something about being there and eating that way. It just seems much more... I don't want to say authentic, but maybe I want to say authentic because it works there. It works in San Sebastian for me because I've done it and I'm just sort of amused by it. Wait, what you're reminding me of, you know, I did this event last week with Padma Lakshmi and Marcus Samuelson and we were taking audience questions about, you know, dinner SOS. And one of the questions was from someone who goes fishing with his friends all the time, except he hates fish. He said, because it's so fishy. So can you give me some suggestions for how to cook the fish so I'll like it? And of course, Padma said the obvious thing, which is don't go fishing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and don't cook fish. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But it is interesting that people don't they they do want to eat fish that doesn't taste fishy sometimes. I mean, I think that's yeah. starting to change, but, you know, because you are getting more people who will eat the fishier fish like mackerel. Well, then we went into the whole John Rowley thing about, you know, John Rowley, who was this guy who 
is now no longer with us, sadly, but um, Julia Child called him the fish missionary. And, you know, she told me, you got to go write about this guy. And um, he had this whole theory that you can't cook fish when it's just caught, that fish has to go in and out of rigor mortis before it's really good. And he proved it. I mean, we remember that, Lori? We went around LA yes. with him. Yes, I, I, I think I mentioned the other day, I, I still think about going with you and John Rowley to supermarkets looking at seafood, and he kind of changed my whole way of thinking about how you look at fish and how you buy fish. And I was so glad you let me tag along on that because, you know, he pointed out, you know, to look at a, you know, even just a swordfish fillet and, if it's starting to turn, like there's that color, it turns, you know, slightly brown that you often see on, on swordfish fillets. And then just, you know, looking at that quality seafood has when it looks, you know, luscious versus cloudy. And just, you know, it just like changed how I buy fish and how I shop. Yeah, and he had this whole idea. He said, you know, see those pretty pink fillets? They're supposed to be white. And when they're pink, it means that they've been dragged, they've been suffocated, and the blood has gone throughout the flesh. And, you know, if it's a white fish, you want it to be white, not pink. You and mean the way it was, ki- the way it was killed? Is that yeah, they, were, they were dragged in nets rather than fished on a line. Uh-huh. And when they're dragged in nets like that, they're actually suffocate, suffocated is how they die. But and wouldn't you assume that every fish that you bought at a supermarket would not be line, ca- line caught? I mean, wouldn't you think that that's how the fish that most people buy is that? Or Yeah, well, actually now probably most of it is farmed, so it's a different right. issue. Yeah, true, true. But he he was amazing, and and one of his, his his real hobby horses was this idea that you don't want fish that's just taken live from a tank and cooked, or you don't want fish that you just um, caught that you just caught that you want it to go into rigor mortis and out. And he proved. I mean, he he made us go and buy catfish and have it killed, and then buy one that had been killed the day before, and cook them both, and the just killed one was mushy. So wait, so how long is that process, the rigor mortis process? It's a few hours. Oh, oh so, you, so you're saying like if you went fishing in the morning with a bunch of buddies and you caught fish, for dinner that night you could cook it and it would have gone through the stages that it needed to be? Or is I that think it soon? depends on the size of the fish. Oh. Um, but what we did was we went to a Chinese supermarket and got catfish and one you mean was live? Some- Live cat. Yeah. One was a live catfish that they killed, and we went home and cooked it. And one was one that had been killed the day before, and we cooked it. And the difference was amazing. I mean, the the just killed one was just mush, and the other one was like firm and really had a nice texture. Now I feel like we have to talk about um, Gilberto Coz mm. because he actually changed the way fish is sold in America. And, you know, Dave Samuels, who was a fourth generation fishmonger 
at the Fulton Fish Market said when Joubert Lacoste opened Le Vernadin, New York, and you know his father was a fisherman. So I mean, he he and Maggie grew up around fish, and he didn't like the quality of fish he was able to get in the United States. And he went down to the Fulton Fish Market. Um, he said, I, mean, I don't know, let's say it was Seoul. And he said to Dave, I want to see all of the Seoul from all of your fishermen. And he went down and stuck his nose into every single case of fish. And he found one and he said, this fish, this is the only guy I'm going to buy it from. And Dave said, why? And he said, because it's fresh. And he said, this other stuff, it's old. And Dave said, we didn't know. He said, you know, I'm fourth generation and we thought a soul was a soul. And he taught us about quality and it changed the way fish is in America. Uh, and when I talked to Eric Repair about him, he said, you know, Gilbert loved the fish so much. He didn't want to do anything to it. Right. He wanted it just really plain. He thought it was a sin to do too much to the fish. And that's what I thought you were going to say when you said how he changed the way we ate fish. Um, in that, that's one of the, um, that's one of the things I noticed so early on in, uh, Bernard, uh, Le Bernardin, and I recognized it to be different from the way I was ordering fish in other restaurants at that time. When did it open? I think it opened around when I was at Maxwell's Plum, I feel, which would be 1985. Is that around? About, when about it then. Yeah. I think, I think it might have been 82, 83. And I was surprised at the simplicity of the dishes then. And yeah. still, right? Yeah. Um, because I was coming into an era of, of food that was, I don't want to say, uh, more is better or, uh, people were kind of showing off, but there was just a lot more that was being done to food starting in the mid eighties. So I didn't see fish, fish in its sort of natural state like I saw there. And I was really, surprised and realized how much more I enjoyed just a simple seared piece of fish well, and that thing. they had the confidence to do that. Yeah. And that was my, um, that was the one year I spent in New York. And I remember having, spending oh. uh, an evening there, I think even with Wolfgang or Nancy, something, but just talking about you. New York. Tell about how you did Thanksgiving at Mac at Maxwell's Plum. Oh God. <laughs> Must <laughs> Come <I>. on. <laughs> Let's put it this way. As I was mixing uh, stuffing in um, garbage cans, because that's <laughs> the amount of people that I needed to, to feed, I remember looking up at Mark, my husband then, and saying, this is the first and only Thanksgiving I will ever serve at Maxwell's Home. So they had, I think, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000. Uh, Thanksgiving guests, uh, you know, in that s short Thanksgiving hours, meaning that people eat Thanksgiving from 12 noon to six o'clock at night or whatever it was. And because of how many dinners they served, they would start uh, in sometime in September, I think, no, 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 sometime in October preparing for Thanksgiving meal. You can 
imagine what a delicious meal you got. But I had never, I never anticipated that that's what it, you know, felt like to serve the masses, which is not, uh, not an easy task. And if you're used to, you know, using the ingredients and the care and the quality and the freshness and that I had been trained to appreciate, it was an eye-opening, never want to repeat this again experience. Well, I think about it every Thanksgiving because you <laughs> described to me once that these these carts lined up outside the kitchen with the with the roasted turkeys on it. And every time oh. I'm worrying about, you know, if I cook two turkeys and I don't have room in the oven <laughs> and so one comes out, you know, four hours before we eat, and I'm, you know, worried about, oh my God, am Start I going to poison October. people? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I know. And I'm wondering that how, but why more people didn't get poisoned by how far ahead, you know, I mean, I think in those days, nobody used, you know, gloves. I mean, I, I don't think people even thought about cross-contamination. It was just enormous amount of food. Jonathan used to joke that his Aunt Ruth would start Thanksgiving dinner in October because the turkey was so overcooked. <laughs> but I didn't oh. I didn't know that it was a real thing at some restaurants. <laughs> oh yeah. What did it feel like oh, putting yeah. your hand in the stuffing in a trash can? can? <laughs> what well that's what I'm saying, the disconnect by the way I, you know, cook and I toss things and I you know, it just it was just a huge disconnect that from what I do on a day to day basis to what I needed to do then. Now, let's suppose I was making this meal because I was feeding people that couldn't afford their own Thanksgiving dinner. Completely different story. I would have gotten, um, I would have gotten a lot from the experience of making, you know, the amount of stuffing that I had to make for the people, the hungry people that I would be feeding. But these were paying customers and I was working in that, you know, it completely different kind of. Is that the uh, worst lineup. job you ever had? It was. Well, it was the, the only, I haven't had a lot of jobs in my life, I've got to say. I don't know if I haven't, because I I had loyalty and I stayed at my jobs long enough or that I was never fired from a job. But, you know, the jobs that I had, I handpicked. And it was just a few of them. And that one was an opportunity that I didn't know what the restaurant was going to be. And it became the worst it was just not the right fit. Not the right fit at all. You How long did you do that? Less than a year. But then as, you know, all, you know, when you want to take a bad experience and turn it into something good, left, immediately put our stuff in storage, rented a house in Tuscany for a month. I had never been away for a month before that. And got to live in the Tuscan countryside, and which I had never lived in the countryside anywhere before, but to live in another country in the countryside with two small kids and to be able to really plan our future, which was let's open our own restaurant and let's not serve Thanksgiving dinners to 2,000 people. <laughs> and so there was always, there's always a good side, you know, you, and to, when you, when you realize, to either to confirm what you do or realize what you don't want to do. There's always a good side. And in know? that period in Italy, is there something you ate that made you see 
what you would do later at Campanile? Was there some? Was yeah, there, there was pivotal meals. There was one pivotal meal in particular that we put a, a dish on the menu that became what we call in the restaurant world a signature dish, and um, it's always great when that signature your dish is a dish that you haven't seen somewhere else and you feel like you invented, but obviously I didn't invent. And that was the chicken that was spatchcocked. So it was butterfly opened up and it cooked, it was cooked under the weight of, um, well, in our case, heavy cast iron pans, but in the Italian tradition, it's polo alla matone. So chicken under a brick, had never seen that before. And I know you see it everywhere now, but the benefit of that was that um, because it was butterflied and it was pressed down under the weight of, in my case, again, cast iron, in that case, a brick, is that it forces the skin to crisp and cook evenly because of that weighted, that weightedness, right? So that was a dish that became really a signature dish for Mark and myself at Campanile. It, I mean, what, what a joy. And I even, you know, and I say that to our cooks as well, whenever they travel or whenever I bring, or I bring them on, you know, a cooking, um, a cooking junket somewhere. I always say you have to bring back one idea. I don't care what it is, but you've got to, there is something always to be, to bring back. Ruth, you had you were trying to compare the difference between, or paint a picture of the difference between, the white cow parmigiano, uh, which is just an exceptional cheese, and to eat it, you appreciate the few cows that produce the milk in Modena to make this white cow parmesan. But saying that when it's exported and you you eat it here, um. It tastes exactly the same because it's not tricky the way it has to be stored. The way bufala, you know, and I, I just came back from Italy, and um, that's one of the experiences of eating bufala in Italy that I never tire of, and I eat as much as I, I can because the bufala, if you buy it from the right place, that bufala is not refrigerated, and bufala milk, mozzarella, cannot be refrigerated. There is something with the, what refrigeration does that it changes completely the composition of that bufala. Um, and we use bufala from Italy at our restaurant. And when the customers come up to me and say, oh my goodness, that bufala was so delicious. I'm just guiltily feeling, oh, I'm so sorry you're not eating it in Italy because it's a different product. It should almost be called something different right? Because it's not the same. And there's so much that we can't bring back. You know, I almost have to say that about basil. I don't care where or who or how the basil is grown in this country, in its terroir, no matter where it is. I have never made a basil that is anywhere close to the basil that I make at my house in Umbria, nothing like it. And there's a perfume, there's a flavor that just gets lost somehow here. But Nancy, I've seen you get something out of 
even food that you didn't love in Italy. And I'm thinking of the panna cotta that was way too rubbery, but you made something amazing out of it. You spoiled it. You spoiled the story. <laughs> did you ever hear? Did you ever? I don't this? know this story. Okay, so um, way it's back, not spoiled yet. Okay, so way back when, before many of us were born, <laughs> no, way back when, before panna cotta was not on every Italian and other menus in every restaurant across the United States. And so, Lori, what year was that? It had to be. In early 90s, I know that because it was the first vacations I took after opening Campanile in 89. So 93, let's just say 93 for the sake of it. It's somewhere in the early 90s. Um, Lori and Jonathan and Mark and I went to Italy for a few weeks. So we just sort of drove all over. Um, I don't remember even what parts we were in. Were we in Emilia Romano or we? where where were we? We landed in Milan and we tried to Uh find... We had some obsession about risotto in a bowling alley in Vercelli. <laughs> Which we found. <laughs> that started the trip. Okay, so. Um, but, um, and I'm not saying I discovered Ponacota because it's another thing that was around much longer than me. But I did appreciate it and I did put it on the Campanile menu when I got back. But the story Lori's referring to is that first night, let's say, or second night there, eating in a restaurant. And um, on the menu, I saw panna cotta, and I had no idea what panna cotta was because it's something I had never seen before. I'd seen tiramisu, I had seen cannoli, but I had never seen panna cotta. So I ordered it and it was delicious. And I was very confused by it because it was white, but it was set. And when I say it was white and set, what I knew was that it... uh had no egg yolks because there would have been a yellow, there would have been yellow to it. So that would have set it. It didn't look like it was in the oven and I couldn't figure to, you know, to bake it like a custard. So it wasn't a flan, but I had no idea what this was. And so I made it a point on the rest of the eight, 10 day trip to order panna cotta, which was on every menu, I think everywhere we went. And I would eat it and I would, you know, I would do what you do, Ruth, which was moving my <laughs> tongue against the roof of my mouth and trying to figure out what it was. And I would smell it and look at it and hold it under uh, whatever, you know, could not, could not, could not, could not figure out what is making this custard set. And the last night we were there, I thankfully, or we thankfully had a terrible version of Ponacota. And it was terrible because it was like a uh, gelatin ball. It was like jello. <laughs> And it was, I don't know why I didn't think of it, but it was, ah, it's jello that's setting the, I'm sorry, it's gelatin that is setting this this dessert. And so I came back and I played with the amounts of milk and cream, the amounts of gelatin, because I couldn't find a recipe. And I don't think Mr. or Mrs. Google existed then. So (laughs) there was no place to look but cookbooks and I couldn't find it in any cookbook that I had. Um... And so I set out to figure out how to get that perfect balance of milk, cream, and gelatin. And it became one of your your signature desserts, as you say. Another signature. So this was, what, 93-ish? You know, 92 or 94. It was the early 90s. Because I think the first panna cotta I ever had was at Babo. 
And Gina, what's Gina's last name? Gina's last name was De Palma. Yeah, Gina De Palma was making the most amazing saffron panna cotta that barely used any gelatin. Yeah, it and just it wiggles. Just, yeah, it just you know. Um, and I, I said, you know, it was held together with a wish. With yeah, that's what a wonderful description because that's how it should be. You shouldn't know that there's gelatin in it. Yeah. And I, I just thought it was magical. Um, and then I discovered what you want to call possets, but which wow. I think is basically panna cotta because it's you cook the cream and you don't use gelatin at all. No, you, you use, just use lemon, lemon juice. So ha- I just discovered that, um, I don't know, say three years ago, four years ago. When did you discover possets? Um, a while ago. A while I mean, ago, I, yeah. I mean, I, it's in it's in my kitchen here, actually. Well, good for you. So your um, posset is my panna cotta. But I called it a panna cotta. Oh, um, no. Yeah, but, because that's funny because posset, you know, four, I don't know, three, four years ago, I was in uh, London, and I saw it on the menu at St. John, and it's like, what's a posset? And who would have guessed. Well, it's similar to a panna cotta because there's like three ingredients, but it's the, it's the heating of the cream and sugar and adding it with le- with adding lemon juice to set it. But what's different about panna cotta and lem- and posset is that panna cotta can the sh- the the life of panna cotta outside of the refrigerator is a lot longer than posset because it has the gelatin to stabilize yeah. it. Posset, you know, you couldn't make a posset and then drive across town in the summer. It would just turn to liquid again. Right. So does right. the lemon but juice it, it, work? It's magical. How does the lemon juice work? Does it, is it like when the kind of cooking of ceviche kind of idea or what, what is that lemon juice no, doing? It's, it's more like, you know, when you make ricotta, mm-hmm. yeah. you basically heat milk and put more lemon in and it curdles. Right. So this is just, it had, it has a chemical action. Right. And you don't put enough to curdle it, but just enough to make it hold together. I might be making this up. I don't remember if I tried and I finally figured it out or it was really rough in the beginning, but I'll just throw it out there that I don't think Meyer lemon worked. It probably doesn't. I, you know, this, you're really getting on one of my hobby horses because I hate Meyer lemons. Ruth, shame on you. I mean, I don't love them for everything. And just, I have a tree in my backyard. <laughs> I love tree. lemons. Why would you yeah. water it down with a tangerine? It makes no sense to me. Well, I but have a, wait, wait a second though. I have a Meyer lemon tree, a regular lemon tree and a tangerine tree all in a row. So I get them all. So what's, what's wrong with and that? And you have kumquats. What are you talking yes. about? You're, I love your kumquats. And grapefruit. Yeah. Well, we now, don't have so any of those here. I wonder if you're allowed to stand on stage in Berkeley and say, my name is Ruth Reichel. And I hate Meyer lemons. I wonder if the crowd would just boo. Probably, but I don't care because I think there is nothing better than a lemon. No, I love lemons. And I love, do you ever have Sorrento lemons? Oh, they're so good. And I actually, at um, Italy in New York, they're selling Sorrento lemons for a ridiculous price, but I bought some last week. And they're so much better. 
Yeah, I mean, they're worth are. every penny. Yep. But Meyer lemons, see, what's funny is that I don't think Meyer lemons, I think there's a place for Meyer lemons. So for instance, when I have a whole piece of fish and I want to squeeze fresh lemon on it, I don't use Meyer lemon. It's uh, That's not what I want. I want a lemon. But when I make a Meyer lemon gelato pie, just, I don't know, it just, to me, it's just so much more elegant. But think how much more delicious it would be with a real lemon. Well, I, I guess, well, I love, I mean, I do. I love acidic food. I love salty food. I like acidic food. There's, that's sort of the premise of all my cooking. But I do feel like Meyer lemon has its place. Not in my kitchen. <laughs> that's a good note. I think that's <laughs> it's a, good- a good note to end on. What, okay. what, what's the phrase? I like that. Not in my kitchen. Not in my kitchen. Wow. My I like kitchen. that. <laughs> Next week, I'm going to tell you what's not in my kitchen. Production services for three ingredients are provided by Voltage. It is produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Ness smith Savadoff. The music for this show was provided by Alex Mastronardi and Richard Farrell. Before you go... Don't forget to join us at threeingredients.substack.com if you haven't already. It's a great place to ask your burning culinary questions, share your own food stories, and meet other people obsessed with food. We love hearing from you. Thanks again, and keep cooking.